Uh, the carrot and the stick approach, you might have noticed the front cover of our booklet. Uh, you, you would have heard of this concept before. It, um, it's, a, it's an idiom that refers to a policy um, of offering a, a combination of incentives and also warnings or punishment um, to induce behaviour. Uh, and it's, you know, you would have seen the picture of the cart driver with the donkey holding the carrot out the front to kind of induce the donkey to go forward and then also holding the stick at the back to give it a kick up the bum so the donkey uh, will, will keep moving. And in, in parenting, we use that punishment or, you know, carrot and stick approach trick all the time. If you eat all your dinner, you can have your dessert. So there's a carrot approach. Or if you don't turn the TV off now, you won't have any TV for the rest of the week. There's the, the stick approach. And God uses a carrot and stick approach too. So although his um, incentives are perfect and true uh, and of eternal value and his punishments are, are frightening and to be taken extremely seriously, um, God's incentives really do, I think, um, define his character. But, y- you know, you have to know about his, um, his uh, stick approach as well. God's incentives include his divine character, for example, uh, which works to magnetise us. So in the same way that an animal or a plant is drawn to, towards the sun, the radiant beams of the sun, to come out and bask in the glory of the sun, so too um, human beings are magnetised towards God's glory, his, uh, his love and his divine beauty. And he also, God offers us the incentives of divine gifts. Uh, of, um, he, he offers to forgive us, um, which he can do because he gave us the gift of his son who died on the cross. And Jesus gave his life for us. It's another gift. God offers to give us new life and a relationship with him. Another incentive from God is the gift of his Holy Spirit and the gifts that go along with that that we can use to serve each other. And also the fruit of the Spirit, um, which is the new character of Christ. God gives us the gift of his word, the Bible, so that we can know him. Um, God offers to hear our prayers and answer them according to his will. And the, um, the, the biggest gift of all is that God offers to give us an inheritance of eternal life. So there's a lot of things here in God's divine carrot, um, if you think about it that way. And this is how we are to primary, primarily to think of God, his love, his holiness, his grace, is essentially who he is. It is his divine essence. And today's passage from Hebrews 10, 19 to 39 shows us two carrots. So I brought two carrots, so you remember. And it's kind of a carrot sandwich, this passage. Carrot, and then something in the middle, which I'm going to talk about now, and then another carrot. In the middle of the sandwich is a stick, right? Or God's warning of judgment. Uh, The idea that we would make God angry and evoke his wrath and judgment on us should alone motivate us to stick with our faith. Um, But God actually gives us two carrots as well. So let's have a look at this carrot sandwich. The first idea of the passage from verses 19 to 25 is to be grace-fueled and gold star. To be grace-fueled and gold star. So the first carrot is an encouraging picture of who you really are if you are a Christian who, is, who has been saved by Jesus Christ. Jesus has changed you, it says. 
He's made you a new person. Look at yourself. You're amazing, says the, says the writer to the Hebrews. He has made you glorious. First of all, he, you know, he cleansed you of your sins. Look at verse 22. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. In the old covenant, the, the sacrificial system that Hebrews has looked at, um, one of the methods of cleansing you from your sins was um, a red heifer would be sacrificed, burnt, and then the ashes would be put in water and then the, that water would be sprinkled on you. Um, it reminded you of your sins and it appeased God's judgment for a period. Um, there was also the ritual washing of, of water, which symbolically you know, showed you the washing away of sins. But again, it appeased God's wrath for a period and it reminded you of your sins. But the writer to the Hebrew is, is, is evoking that imagery and saying, you've been washed by Jesus' blood. That's been sprinkled on your heart. The better, the better ultimate image um, of what, what that was pointing to, the old system, You've got the real thing in Jesus' blood. You've been baptised in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. You've been baptised with fire and with the Holy Spirit. This is God's divine carrot, you know. Look at what the great priest over the house of God has done, it says in verse 21. By his grace, you've been changed. It's a picture of yourself. Now you can walk with God in his presence with confidence, verse 19. You can have full assurance, verse 22. Now you can walk through the curtain into the most holy place. And you might remember back earlier in Hebrews, it's talked about the image of the temple. That's what it's evoking here. You can be in the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for you. This is your new and living way, verse 20 says. And this is all a picture of grace. He is saying, look at what Jesus has done for you. You are amazing because of what he's done. He's taken away your sin and you've got a new life. He's made you a new person. And so this is a carrot to spur you on because being in the knowledge of the great grace that God has shown you should make you full of hope, says in verse 23. And the writer to the Hebrews, he says, now what I want you to do because of that is embrace your Christian life and live it to a full, full extent. So be like a, a gold star disciple. By that I simply mean throw your whole self in, live and embrace everything, boots and all. Um, give it your best shot. And he's trying to inspire us. When I was um, back a music student back at uni and, and uh, I was studying in my final year uh, from the head viola player from the Melbourne Symphony, Catherine Brockman, and her husband, Bill Hennessy, was the head of our strings. And they just lived over the, on the other side of the Alexander Parade in um, Collingwood. And um, one day I was coming to my lesson at, at, at Catherine's house and I arrived and no one was home. So I went to the front garden and um, I just thought I oh, might as well pull out my viola and start practicing. So I, I sat on the porch and practiced scales. And I was there for about half an hour practicing my scales because I thought I might as well use the time. And Bill came home and let me in and Catherine came home eventually and then I had my lesson and she apologized for being late. But my practicing on the porch must have made an impression because a few days later I was in orchestra sitting there just you know, staring at the ceiling waiting for things to start. And Bill, who was our conductor, stood up and started telling the story about this guy who's um, a student at the con who is so committed to his instrument that I came home the other day and I could hear him practicing in the front garden of our house. He was so committed. And I wasn't even paying attention, you know, when people are talking and you're not listening, like some of you are right now. Um, that's what I was doing. I was sort of staring at the ceiling and he was talking about me. And then he said, oh, and then he pointed to me and everyone sort of looked at me. 
And finally, instead of having viola jokes made, which is what they do in orchestras, he was complimenting me on, on being so committed to my instrument, and that made me feel really encouraging, encouraged. Um, and I felt good because I was making progress and I was being told, you know, well done for putting in so much effort. Now, the writer to the Hebrews isn't saying, you are all perfect Christians and therefore, because you live so obediently and sacrificially, God is pleased with you. He's not saying that. But he's kind of, he's saying, you should have confidence and assurance in your Christian walk because of what Jesus has done for you, because of grace. He's made you great by this grace. He has graciously given you his righteousness. So be fueled by it and live out your faith as gold star disciples. Jump into your Christian life, boots and all. Practice your faith on the porch when you uh, have a spare 30 minutes. In America, starting back in World War I, families who had relatives in the armed forces were given a flag by, by the, um, the military to, to wave in their front garden. And it was a blue flag. Uh, sorry, it had a blue star for those serving in the war. But if their um, family member was killed, it was turned into a gold star. And so those families were known as gold star families and they're highly kind of sort of respected in the community for, for having a family member that gave up their life um, for, for the country. And you might remember the Khan family that was in the news you know, about a few months ago when Donald Trump attacked them. They were a gold star family. Um, soldiers all over the world give their whole lives to the service of their country. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, give your whole life to your faith because of what Jesus is doing. Be a gold star Christian. Be determined. And then he goes on and says in the passage, you all have a role to play to encourage each other. Spur one another on towards, towards love and good deeds, it says in verse 24. Actually, I'll let you in on a secret here. Um, you, you know, the, the, the rule of preaching is never mention the Greek, except when it's really cool. Um, and so it's really exciting. It's a, it's a gift here. Um, and the word uh, here for spur is a word that can be used negatively or positively. And spur doesn't really give you the full meaning. And actually, when it's used positively, it means stimulation or provocation. So stimulate each other on to be, you know, to your full faith or provoke each other on. Negatively, it's like poke each other, jab each other so that you are motivated to act. So the only other time this word is used in the Bible is when Paul and Barnabas had a big Barney over um, who would take Mark with them on their missionary journey. They, um, you, this word is used to describe pushing each other to, to make a decision and to, to resolve the issue. But the writer to the Hebrews is using this positively here. He's saying, you know, jab each other, spur each other, stimulate, stimulate each other, provoke each other so that you will um, be like a footy coach, you know, in the premiership quarter, you know, just inspiring each other to, to run home and finish and win the match. Uh, the, so the New American Standard Bible does use the word stimulate and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, rev each other, motivate each other. And the way you do this is in verse 25, a simple way. For example, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Parrot. Now, encouraging each other. So there's two applications here. First, 
provoke, stimulate, spur each other on to love and good deeds. And the way you do that is by not giving up meeting with each other with your Christian brothers and sisters. Don't do this out of religious duty, not out of guilt, but do it, do it because you're grace-fueled and you want to fully live out your Christian life as a gold star Christian. <coughs> grace-fueled and gold star disciples don't rock up to church 25 minutes late, do they? They don't rock up late every third Sunday. That's not going to stimulate or provoke anyone, is it? That's not going to provoke anyone to love and good deeds. Grace-fueled and gold star disciples are motivated and want to motivate others. So they come early to church and they help around. If there's something that needs to be done, they sit up extra chairs. They pray for someone. They talk to, to people who are new. Regular meeting together is about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. So if you're part of a play group or a community group or just a prayer triplet, something like one of those kind of groups, and you say you're going to be part of it, um, don't be one of those people that always intends to go and never goes. That's not going to encourage anyone, is it? Nobody forced you to sign up to those groups. You chose it. Constantly pulling out at the last minute for this or that reason because you're feeling a bit tired or because or, or, you know, you've got something else better to do, it actually has the opposite effect of what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about. It discourages your brothers and sisters away from love and good deeds. It makes them say, these people are not committed. They don't care. So I won't care either. I think being respectful of each other's time with regards to the groups you're being part of is one of the best ways to show love to each other. It requires you to do a few things. It requires you to use your diary and write things down and remember. You know, we've got phones now that send alarms to us, so it's pretty easy these days. Secondly, it, it, it requires you to manage your energy levels. Everyone is tired. Um, Using tiredness as an excuse occasionally is fine, I think. But if you're saying it all the time, either you've got a problem with tiredness and need to see a doctor, or you're not really being grace-fueled and gold star. You're not really living your Christian faith out, boots and all. If you're being, you know, if you're regularly too tired for church activities that you have volunteered for, that no one's made you do, perhaps you're overcommitted in general in life. Maybe you should share your tiredness with the group instead of just sort of staying away. Perhaps they can change the time of the meeting or perhaps they can pray for you. Perhaps you're doing too much in life. But don't just send text messages five minutes before because that it does the opposite of what the writer to the Hebrews does. That discourages people. That makes people feel less motivated. Maybe go to bed earlier. Maybe eat more healthily. Don't overcommit yourself. This is not about religious legalism. This is about responding to all those things that you are, that Jesus has done for you. And then when you do go, you need to have a positive attitude. People who come to groups being negative are actually going to have the opposite effect, aren't they? Of, of discouraging each other. Nobody is provoked into love and good deeds when they're surrounded by cynical negative people. Work at not being cynical and negative. If you're going to say complaining words, maybe hold back. Check to make sure it's really necessary. Put each other's needs before your own. And being positive doesn't mean being a faker. Uh, it doesn't mean just pretending with a smile on your face. Because I think you can be committed to each other and spur each other on and be real as well. You can 
Gather together with your brothers and sisters and say, I'm exhausted, my life is not going well, or my relationships are busting up, or work is shocking at the moment. That is, you can be real and spur each other on at the same time. You get the psychological strength to do this from the grace that Jesus has shown you. This is the new and living way of assurance and hope. This is being grace-fueled and gold-starred. And this is the first big carrot. Let's move to the stick. And this is going to shock. This is my point. If you back out, you'll burn. But this is not us. Look at verse 26 to 27. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment (coughs) and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. This is a passage that clearly talks about the warning of hell. And while we might balk at the imagery of hell and fire and brimstone, the thing that you do when you preach it in a church and when you're reading the Bible is when you get to the passages that talk about hell, you talk about hell. You don't jump over it. Now let's be clear. Hebrews has shown us already that God um, forgives people of their sins if they have faith in Jesus. And if, if you are a Christian and you mess up in sin, uh, we have a great high priest, Jesus, who empathises with us, who, who understands our struggles because he's been tempted in every way. And we can come back to him. And we are already forgiven. Welcome to the club. If you're a Christian who who messes up, welcome to the club. Praise God that you are already forgiven. And that we worship a God of grace. But what we're being warned of here is something very specific. We're talking about the consequence for a person who's become a Christian, who's received all those good things that is talked about in the start of the passage and then deliberately turns it back on God and says, I don't want this anymore, I reject it, and revels in a life of sin and celebrates sin, as opposed to a Christian who sins because they messed up, which is all of us. The consequence of deliberately sinning in an ongoing way and rejecting God is that there is no other way of being forgiven, it says. Jesus died on the cross and provided the perfect sacrifice, so if you have faith in him, you can be forgiven. If you receive that forgiveness... And then you turn the face and you spit in, his, in God's face and say, oh, I'm not interested, get stuffed. passage says, well, Jesus didn't give you a second option. Like, there's no other type of forgiveness on offer here. And the consequence is the horrific judgment of hell. It's the punishment of eternal separation from God's love. And it is unpleasant. And it says in verse 28, the Hebrew people who rejected the law of Moses, they were punished. How much more do you think you're going to be punished if God has given you the gift of his grace and you say, get stuffed? Look at verse 29, explicit. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace? See, God's divine essence is not anger and wrath and judgment. Rather, they are the consequence of his divine essence, which is his holiness and love. If, if, if an unholy thing comes in contact with a, a perfectly holy thing, it gets burnt up. You think about it like this. Human justice requires judgment for its own satisfaction. To use an extreme example, if, if someone commits murder 
horrifically, goes to court and the judge says, oh, don't worry about it, go home. There would be outrage in the community, wouldn't there? We would want to see judgment and justice. I just watched the recent O.J. Simpson uh, TV series on Netflix and, and, the, and the documentary that goes with it. And when he was first pardoned for those two murders, everyone knew, knew well, everyone knew he did it, but it, then, he was, then the jury said not guilty. People were outraged. There was chaos on the streets. People were actually crying. They showed footage of people in the streets crying. So in the same way, God, his divine justice, requires judgment for its own satisfaction. Now, I'm fully aware that for many people here, the idea of hell is abhorrent. The concept of hell is abhorrent. And that you would rather believe in what you call a God who is all-loving and just accepts everyone and has no judgment. And if that is you, I can understand how you get to that point. But it is not a belief that is consistent with the Bible. Taking hell out of the Christian message, actually, it undermines the whole storyline of the Bible. The gospel message of Jesus Christ, it's like an ecosystem. You take one essential bit out and the whole ecosystem collapses in on itself. You know, you know, they talk about, oh, what if we kill all the spiders? If you kill the spiders, then who's going to eat the flies? And if no one eats the flies, then we're going to be swamped with flies. You know, the whole thing just has a trickle-on effect. If you take out um, the concept of judgment and hell out of the Bible, God ceases to be personal, in fact. In our limited human thinking, we're trying to make God into a nicer person, by more loving by removing the concept of judgment and hell. But this is making God less loving, in fact. Why? Because the ultimate image of God's love is, his, is him sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven of our sins and not be eternally punished. Uh, if you take away the concept of God's judgment in hell, then God doesn't send his son Jesus and there is no ultimate uh, example of God's personal um, sacrificial love towards Towards his people. You know, think of John 3.16. So for God so loved the world that he didn't really need to send his own son because it doesn't matter who believed in him, no one's going to per- perish. Um, everyone can just have eternal life. That's how John 3.16 gets translated if you go with that theology. Take out hell, the ecosystem collapses. There is no good news. God's ultimate act of love is meaningless. The notion of an all-loving God who does not judge is impersonal. It turns Christianity into philosophy. It's a nice way to live. And if you want to understand God's judgment, you look to Jesus. Jesus is the perfect judge. Think about him. But he came on earth, and you read the Gospels, what does he do? He doesn't go around judging people. He doesn't go around with a sword in his hands, but he goes around with nails in his hands. He takes the judgment on himself, doesn't he? Jesus is the judge who was judged in our place. And he did this so that all who believe in him can can stand before God and have confidence, to use the words from the passage. We're pardoned because of what Jesus has done. So we need this stick in the passage to remind us. And strangely, the stick is actually loving. It's a message of hope. Look, look at the key verse in verse 39, the very last verse of the passage. It, it, it just, it's important to this message. But we do not belong 
to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And this has been the message all along in Hebrews. It's an important uh, disclaimer. We are given a warning of the consequences of turning away, and it's a real warning, but it's not because the writer to the Hebrews expects that it's going to happen. He's actually saying to the church, you guys are Christians, you're committed to your faith. Do you know what the consequence of giving up is? That's the consequence. But I'm just telling you to motivate you to keep going. The warning is real, but it's made in the context of a worshipping community. And we've had this happen before in Hebrews. It's like when you say, if you don't study for your exams, you won't get into uni, which is not true. Uh, Or if you don't practice, you won't pass the audition. Or if you don't keep running, you won't finish the race. That's what's going on in the passage here. It's It's a real warning designed to motivate us to spur us on. And we should be in fear of it and take it seriously. But he's saying, but we're not that kind of people, are we, to give up? It's a very, very effective stick. Finally, we have our last carrot. Press on into perfection. And this is where I'm going to end. Verse 32 to 33. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. The carrot again is appealing to our better natures. It's saying you've lived your life as Christians and you've endured so much. You can keep doing it. And he's reminding them to remember their reward. Verse 34. Because you could do it because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Eternal possessions. He was talking about when they had their stuff taken away, their possessions taken away. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Carrot. Here's the carrot sandwich. They should keep pressing on, remembering their reward in hope that Jesus will return. And finally, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. He is coming back soon. Let's pray that God's carrot and stick and carrot approach will spur you on in your faith. <coughs> Lord God, this is uh, serious stuff we have in this passage. It's, it's inspiring, exciting, and it's haunting. And it is effective in spurring us on to keep going in our faith. <coughs> we pray that we take all of the scriptures seriously. And we don't feel discouraged by this passage, but we feel motivated to be gold star Christians, to embrace our whole Christian life and fueled by your grace. Amen.